0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Palladium Magazine's Digital Salon with Dr. Nicholas Christakis. I'm Wolf Tivey, Editor-in-Chief of Palladium. I'm joined by Ash Milton, our Managing Editor. Nicholas Christakis is the Sterling Professor of Social and Natural Science at Yale University. He is also Director of the Human Nature Lab and Co-Director of the Yale Institute for Network Science. His research focuses on topics such as Biosocial Science, Behavioral Genetics, and Network Science. Nicholas is also the author of a newly released book, Apollo's Arrow The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live, in which he explores the impact of the pandemic on our institutions and what lessons it teaches us about our evolved social nature. So, as usual, we're joined by our live audience of Palladium members. And, Nicholas, welcome to the salon.
1: Thank you for having me, Wolf and Dash.
2: Great. Go for it. I want to. I want to just talk about the book a little bit. I read the book, Nicholas, um, preparing for this, and it it was quite interesting to me. I was almost expecting a more analytic work in the sense of you know a, a lot of top level analysis, but when I was reading the book, I was interested that you actually used a quite narrative form. In the book, you sort of go through right the stages of as this pandemic was breaking out, you talk about your experience, seeing how first, uh, you know, medical personnel responded, how different communities responded. It was interesting in that, you know, obviously 10 months ago, none of this had happened yet. And now I feel like I'm reading this narrative history of something that has just happened. And I mean, I'm sure we're gonna get you know, volumes and volumes of, of, of COVID histories down the road. And it's a kind of, given how quickly all of this has occurred, there's an almost surreal feeling to uh, reading super detailed history of something that we didn't even really know was coming, you know, a, a year ago. So uh, I just wanted to say, I, I, I like uh, that you use that format. I, I was wondering, was your goal to try and make sense of, of everything that's happened? Were, were you using the opportunity to kind of piece together your memories of going through this?
1: Well, my goal was to write an appealing book that would help people understand the nature of the predicament we're facing. I mean, we in our country and in the whole world are experiencing a once in a century event. We, we may think this way that we're living now is so alien and unnatural, but there's nothing alien and, un- and unnatural about human plagues. Um, plague is a part of human experience. Uh, it's just new to us. I mean, we think this is such a crazy thing that is happening and how could it be happening? Maybe there's even some American exceptionalism here too. We think, oh, we're rich 21st century, scientifically grounded, uh, modern nation. Uh, how can we be being affected by these, you know, things we read about in history books? But well, history only happens to other people. Yes, other I mean, why should we think that we uh, would not? So, I think I thought my primary objective was to try to help people to understand not just epidemiology 101, which I do do some in the book, but also just position this experience in the sweep of of human experience. And and the book, as you said, has a certain narrative arc. It tells the story. Uh, as it unfolded and um, and then then sort of forecast what's how, what's going to happen, you know, how the plague will end, mm-hmm. how the pandemic will end. What happened to me is I had read some news reports in January. I mean, I, I'm a physician and a social scientist and I've done a lot of work in epidemiology. so I was, you know kind I had the knowledge I needed to make sense of what was happening. but obviously I've never lived through any material pandemics either. the 2009 h1N1 pandemic, that many of the listeners are old. All the listeners are old enough to remember. They don't remember because it was so mild. It didn't really kill anyone. It was a hundred times or more less deadly than the current one, and um, and the 1957 pandemic, which maybe some of your listeners are old enough to remember that, and um, most people don't remember it. That was the second worst pandemic we've had up until COVID-19 in the last hundred years. Anyway, so the events, the reports are coming out of China. In early January, I was sort of reading in the newspapers. I wasn't paying a ton of attention. And then I got contacted by some, some Chinese colleagues of mine for, with whom I've been doing a lot of research over the last few years using phone data where we, we had detailed records on people's phones and uh, where they were and who they were calling. I mean, this was anonymized. We didn't have identifying information. And we had been previously looking at things like the impact of earthquakes on people's social interactions or, or the impacts of the building of a high-speed rail line, for example. And um, we decided, they contacted me and said, hey, we should really use the data to look at the pandemic in China. This was around January 24th or so. Mm-hmm. And um, and so we decided to do a project together. In that paper, we used data on 11 million people transiting through Wuhan through the month of January. And as they spread out around China, we were able to perfectly predict the intensity, location, and timing of the pandemic. And that paper was submitted February the 18th and it was published a couple of months later in the journal Nature. And so therefore by by the beginning of February, the pandemic had my entire attention. And I was carefully watching what was happening in China and your listeners may or may not remember this detail, but on January the 24th, the Chinese basically detonated a social nuclear weapon. That is to say, they thought this virus was so powerful that they put 930 million people under lockdown, they, they, under home confinement. So, so that got my attention. I'm like, oh, my goodness, these people are scared of whatever it is that they're facing. And so by the middle of February, I had redirected my entire laboratory to study this. And then by the end of February, I was getting very alarmed that the United States was not taking it seriously. And of course, Italy had occurred by then. And by the beginning of March, I sort of decided that I would
2: write a book about it. <laughs> so mm-hmm, right? anyway, yeah. that's I'm and this talking- is still the period uh, in February when there there is this attitude that talking about COVID is alarmist, right? I think we've kind of memory hold this a bit, but there there was a time I was still seeing headlines. I think early February, at least, um, that you know y- y- you had a few people here and there talking about COVID and. Uh, it was not treated seriously. And then come March, we had this massive flip. Uh, and I think after that, we got so dragged along by um, the experience of of this thing unfolding so quickly, you know, within days in a lot of places uh, when lockdown started that, that we forgot what that run up was like.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a flip that occurs in New York. Uh, I think it's March the 3rd. Bill de Blasio is shown riding in a subway car saying, never mind, you know, everything is fine. And three weeks later is saying, oh, my God, we can any any veterinarians in the city send us ventilators. And what's weird to me is that same thing happened in Houston, Texas, a few months later, by the way, when uh, the governor of Texas is like, you know, everyone, never mind. And then three weeks later, oh, my God, you know, it's a disaster. What this is, the you know, I, I, I can't speak for the man on the street or the woman on the street, but I think to expert epidemiologists or or at least in that class of people sort of people who follow these types of things, including myself. I mean, it was obvious what was going to happen. I mean, Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, it was pretty we now know that the president of the United States was briefed by the National Security Agency in December about this. And I'm sure Tony Fauci was quite clear as to what was going to happen, probably, I'm sure, before me. But to me, by January, like I said, by the end of January, I was 100 percent sure that this is what was going to happen. So the people that were saying, never mind, I don't think we're particularly well informed. That is to say, the actual experts were alarmed. And all my friends with whom I was, you know, messaging uh, at that period of time, other sort of, you know, I don't know how to describe them, you know, important scientists. Yeah, other experts, you know, who are really deep expertise in this topic. All of us were greatly alarmed. What
0: do you think happened there? Because I remember that period where it was clear that the experts were worried, it was clear that independent observers were worried, but a lot of journalists, a lot of sort of official voices were still well, kind of downplaying it. What 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 accounts for that disconnect?
1: So there are a number of explanations for that. The first and most fundamental explanation is that it is, ex, it is in the intrinsic nature of exponential growth that for a very long time it looks like nothing is happening, nothing is happening, nothing is right. happening, and then all of a sudden a lot happens. And so it's very difficult to sound the alarm when you're on the flat part of the curve, you know, even if the diseases are doubling, even if the doubling time is a week, you know, you go from one case in the United States to two to four to eight to 16 to 32, you know, it's now we're to, to you know, 64 or two months, it takes a while and then of course, as you guys all know it explodes and so the problem is people who are observing can see what's happening, but when they sound the alarm, they look alarmist, right? If people Mm -hmm. in February who were saying, this is serious, you know, this disease is spreading person to person. It has a short doubling time. It has a high R-naught, relatively high. And, uh, but when you said that people look around and they say, what are you talking about? Everything looks normal, right? I don't see any Mm -hmm. patients. I, society is functioning fine. So, so there, so that's one issue that it's very difficult to it's in the intrinsic nature of these exponential growth that it's hard to sound the alarm about something, first point. Mm-hmm. Second point, as I discuss in, in Apollo's arrow, there is, there is this sort of predilection to denial and lies that uh, has accomp- accompanies all uh, serious outbreaks and has done so for centuries. So as you probably know, Plague is one of the four, four horsemen of the apocalypse. Right. And I would say that mendacity is his squire you know, they just follows right behind him. So there is always lies, you know, fantasy that that nothing is happening is not so bad, you know, or, 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 uh, you know, lies about how to treat it. The the problem, of course, in our country was that this was also instantiated in the highest level of government and the president of the United States was spreading utter falsehoods. And we now know that he had been briefed and uh, was deliberately lying um, to the American people. So, so you know, this happens, okay? Mm-hmm. So so if the president was doing this, you know, the average person on the street who doesn't have access to the head of the CDC and the director of national intelligence, you know, we can understand why they also would be doing this. But the I, CDC I wanna...
0: was also like in, involved in a lot of that. Like it didn't look like there was the lives were coming from sort of any one sector. Of the no, society. the experts. Like every, every institution was no, 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 no no, no, no the things experts. like masks don't work and no, stuff like no, no. this, right?
1: No, no, no. The experts of the CDC knew exactly what was happening. It was the political appointees at the top that were p- painting a rosier picture. And the mask issue is a more complicated story. Uh, I don't exactly know who said what about masks early on. I, I released it, me and a group of other people by April were sufficiently upset about the about the uh, misinformation about masking that we released a white paper mm. saying, you know, wake up, people. Masking is clearly important. But um, yes, you're right. There was some flip-flopping about that. Um, And we can actually talk about what it means, why it's so difficult to have precision, and how to keep public trust during a time of plague, which includes Mm -hmm. honesty with your audience, sharing the uncertainty, and sharing the evidence for your claims. So if you say, I'm recommending not to wear masks, you say, why? And then you also communicate how certain you are. And that way, when you revise your opinion a week or a month later, you can say, then I thought this, now I think that, um, which enhances credibility and which is essential in combating a public health disaster.
2: Yeah, it seems like in terms of the in the play by play here, and I don't really want us to get bogged down just in in the play by play here, because I think there's a lot of interesting higher level analysis in the book. But I I, one of the things that it seemed to me happened was that, obviously, like by the nature of this thing, uh, any recommendation was going to have certain caveats, it might have to be updated. What we kind of had was that each recommendation on the political level especially was given with a kind of certainty that yes. there was like the invocation that ah well the experts say x this is the strategy and you know uh, criticism of this is kind of either malicious or disruptive or something like that which works maybe the first couple times but then obviously as you kind of have to continually update people become less willing to listen to expert advice when they're being told that like from their perspective, it seems to be changing week to week.
1: Yes, but one thing you can do in that situation is it's is possible that, as known to God, the situation is changing week to week. Even a person with omniscience might, the, the actual objective reality might be so fluid that even a person who perfectly perceived that reality and was describing it to you would be changing what they're saying every week. So we have to distinguish was the situation fluid? Was it innocent ignorance? Was it willful ignorance? Was it incompetent ignorance? I mean, what was the source of the flip-flopping? And, right, we, can, right. and we can discuss that. But one of the things that happens early on in pandemics is that it's like, it's like the fog of war. I mean, it is confusing. There are mm. things we know and there are things we don't know. But what I can tell you is that the Chinese scientists had released enough information on publicly available preprints in January that it mm. was perfectly obvious to people like me who were reading that stuff what was going to happen. And as I said, we now know that at the highest levels of our government, they of course correctly assessed the situation. We also know that United States senators were briefed and started selling their stock, for example, while they were telling the American public never don't worry, they were, you know, rejiggering their stock portfolios. Mm-hmm. So 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 there was knowledge, there was expertise in our country, which isn't surprising. I just need to emphasize for the audience, again I can't see their faces, I don't know exactly what their expertise and interests are, but everyone should understand that the the CDC every two or three years releases a uh, uh, you know a plan for a pandemic response. You know this is this is a much foreseen situation. Bill Gates had a, a TED talk like 10 years ago that has 30 or 40 million views in which he says this is the thing that he was most mm-hmm. worried about. The Bush administration, then the Obama administration, had a playbook on pandemic preparedness. This was a a potential grave threat to our national security that every serious thinker about such things, the Defense Department of Defense considers these possibilities. And, and, and for obvious reasons, because look what's happened to us. I mean, this is not a joke. Uh, mm. uh, Larry Summers, a former treasury secretary uh, and uh, David Cutler, an economist at Harvard recently released a paper two weeks ago or so calling this the $16 trillion virus. We have $8 trillion, $8 trillion. I mean, these are vast sums of loss due to the economic damage of the virus, and a further $8 trillion due to the death and disability and health consequences of the virus. I mean, this is a, like we were discussing, what people need to understand is this is a century, once in a century level catastrophe, which incidentally, lest people misunderstand two things, and I'll shut up. First, we are not at the beginning of the end of this. Mm -hmm. We're just at the end of the beginning. This is the virus is still in its opening act, first point. And second point, we are really lucky that this virus is not worse. Mm -hmm. I mean, this could have been like the movie *Contagion*, right? It really could have been.
2: Yeah, you You could have have, like uh, Ebola-like diseases also into pandemic mode. Um, Yes, or or, I I want to say though. uh, Go ahead. Finish your point. I wanted to just uh, move into the the book a little more.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Just to finish the point. So Mm. there are seven coronaviruses that afflict human beings. Four cause the common cold. And the other three have been um, new pathogens in the last 20 years. One is the 2003 SARS pandemic, Mm -hmm. which only infected 8000 people worldwide in 30 countries and then petered out. We can talk about why if you're interested. Mm. But it killed 10 percent of the people that got it. The other was the 2012 MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, coronavirus, which kills 30 to 35% of the people that get it. And this one that we have kills about 1% of the people that get it. There's no reason this coronavirus couldn't have killed 10 times as many people. We're lucky
2: it's not worse. Right. And I I want to take us a little into the early stages of when, 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 you know, when it was obvious this was a pandemic. Um, I think one of the interesting things you talk about in the book is how plagues and you know, other disasters actually can drive mutual aid and solidarity. And it seemed like in, in some of these early weeks, um, there were examples of this. You know, again, something I think people have forgotten a bit. You uh, have some examples. You point out Orthodox Jews uh, in New York driving overnight to donate blood in different states. Um, I think you kind of more broadly mentioned as well, you know, you often see rises in marriages or in childbirth after disasters. So at the beginning, we had this period of greater cooperation. I wonder, you know, in your opinion, why was America unable to maintain the kind of unity that we saw early on? I don't think we had unity. I
1: think we had, I think we had human beings acting nicely as human beings are wont to do. So I'm very optimistic about People, and uh, my most recent other book was called Blueprint: The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society. You guys may know this about me. Certainly, my my disposition is optimistic and uh, positive, but I also, you know, have a kind of very favorable attitude about our species. You know, I think our species is miraculous, and we do many wonderful things. Like as you're saying, we cooperate. We're nice to strangers. Uh, we uh, we love each other. Uh, you know, these are unusual qualities. compared to many other animal species. Anyway, so I do not think we had any kind of coordinated, or certainly not nationally coordinated, and even state by state there was a lot of uh, variation. I think lots of people were behaving in altruistic ways. Many physicians and nurses and first responders took material risks to their lives. Hundreds of American healthcare workers have died. Let's not forget as a result of this, um, which which is awful and much of it, that death was unnecessary, frankly, it was the incompetence of our government and not preparing adequately in, uh, in February and March that put our doctors and healthcare workers at risk. Um, but nevertheless, doctors were altruistic, uh, people were altruistic, there was a tremendous amount of donation and giving and checking in on our neighbors and all the things that you mentioned. And I think that persists, by the way, so I don't think that's gone away. I I think Mm -hmm. the problem for us has been that we haven't had an effective collective
2: response in our institutions of government. Uh, You compare to the Spanish flu a bit and how uh, I I think one of the big differences was that in the Spanish flu, the responses by institutions were framed in patriotic terms and in terms of supporting the troops and the war effort Whereas it seems like this time, things were often framed in terms of like, you know, public health, public safety. Um, and then as things got more polarized, obviously, you know, the different responses got painted in very uh, partisan political terms. Uh, do you think it, do you think our institutions currently that it was possible at all to actually have that more unified response or or were we sort of doomed from the get-go on that? No, I think
1: that I, I um... I think one of the pillars of coping with catastrophes, and in particular, explicitly collective ones like an epidemic, where my actions affect your risk of death. Mm-hmm. It's not just a natural disaster. It's like what the humans are doing affects the risk of other people of dying, of you know being exposed to the catastrophe. One of the pillars of dealing with such catastrophes is precisely leadership and public health communication. We were talking earlier about the, you know, how do you maintain credibility? And so if I think we needed that kind of coordination, and I think the government, we are entitled to that. I mean, we're the United States of America. We, we, we spend 17.7% of our health of our GDP on healthcare. We have the richest democracy in the world. We, we clearly could have, and should have done better uh, than we did. And so, And and I think what that would have required is the the bully pulpit of the president and of uh, other scientists and leaders who would have been enfranchised to speak to the American public and to communicate to them the nature of this event, the risk that it posed, the sacrifice and maturity that would be required of us. And instead, we were told, oh, you know, it's not such a big deal. Or actually, it, it would have been okay for our leaders to say, look, what we ordinarily would need to do to cope with this thre- this threat is to shut down our economy but if we shut down our economy other people will die because of course poverty kills mm-hmm. and there are other hardships that would adduce. and dear american citizenry a public it is these are difficult decisions because we have to weigh different deaths and make a kind of rough utilitarian calculus and and here's how i i the president or whatever have done this calculus and And here's a course of action I'm recommending. I'm recommending we take the hit. We're going to have a million Americans die, uh, but we're not going to, you know, the government isn't going to shut down the economy. Keep in mind, the virus would have shut down our economy, even if the government had done nothing. Hmm. Uh, But at least we would have had honest communication. But instead, we were told, oh, it's not a serious virus, or it's really not going to affect us, and, you know, we're paying a needless price, which is-
2: we refuse to confront that there's an actual political decision that has to be made, right? Yes. And I think that is, you know, we've discussed this often on the salons, that American institutions, for various reasons we could go into, seem to buck, pass, and shrink from political decision-making of that sort. Partisan decision-making can be done, but political decision-making of this sort well, there... it's interesting because, I,
1: I mean... I My American history is so-so, so I won't be able to cite chapter and verse of, of prior, but it's, you know, it, it, the nature of this threat, given its once in a century magnitude, it's um, the fact that the world has changed. I mean, this virus, you know, was introduced into our species sometime in November of 2019. Uh, and it's just going to circulate among us forever now. The world is different. The virus is out there. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. And... Um, And it's it's a deadly virus, and um, so we have to cope with that, right? And I would have hoped Mm. that our country, which again I'm, I'm not jingoistic, but like I I rather like the United States. I think we're an Mm. impressive nation. I have high hopes for us, Uh, and I would have thought that we would have been better able, especially given our previous level of preparedness, to cope with this, you know, sudden event. And yet we have had an embarrassing response with a lot of needless death. Keep in mind, some deaths were going to happen no matter what. There's no way yeah, to of stop completely. So I'm not, I'm not setting up a, a situation where like we could have somehow completely avoided all disaster. And I still think, incidentally, we're at about 300,000 excess deaths now as of, what is it today, November the 7th. And I think we'll surpass half a million deaths before this pandemic ends in another year or two. Two or three years, we can talk about that why what that means in the time mm. horizon. At least half a million Americans and as many as one million Americans are gonna die. That is a enormous toll of mortality. Mm-hmm. And you know, I I would not willingly accept that. I would have tried harder to do better to cope. Mm
0: in the book you talked about how people's behavior was changed at least as much by campaigns to act in the public interest as by campaigns warning about the danger of catching the virus and you mentioned earlier in this conversation just that people seem to have this natural altruistic response and that's what we were we we're seeing a lot of early in the early in the process so humans seem to be actually quite pro social in practice in our instincts but in in a lot of the narratives we used to talk about how society works um and, and just at the, at the theory level, we seem to be prone to thinking of people as primarily selfishly motivated. Um, so why, why do we seem to be thinking about like, when we're thinking ideologically, why are we thinking that people are so selfish uh, or do you agree that that seems to be kind of no. a, an assumption?
1: No, I mean, there is selfishness, there's cruelty, there's violence, mm-hmm. there's tribalism. There are many awful things about us as well. Um, I'm not, ignorant of the awful traits that uh, you know our species manifests the pogroms and the inquisitions and yeah. the enslavement and the you know uh, the violence and the warfare and everything else but also there is good in human beings and uh much of it and in fact as i made an extended argument elsewhere but the good outweighs the bad and this you right. know, we're like one of the few species for instance that that uh, raises non-biological children you know we adopt children mm-hmm. That's a very uncommon as this animal. We cooperate with each other. We we share knowledge. We help strangers. I mean, every every person listening to this has been kind or polite to strangers as a routine matter as they go about their business. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and maybe they take this for granted. Or here's another thing we do that's amazing: we accumulate knowledge and share it laterally and intertemporally. Mm -hmm. In other words, our ancestors bequeathed us the information on how to deal with epidemic disease. We didn't have to discover it. There's a playbook, literally a book, you know, a national plan for pandemic preparedness that other humans had, you know, written about and we could use. So that's a kind of altruism, that kind of teaching, Mm -hmm. the giving of. Right.
0: So so what what I'm getting at is is. We seem to not talk about the altruism in in the discourse about how society works. We're often no, assuming no. the people are selfish. Why? No, why some is that, people.
1: I, I don't know. I mean, some people may make that assumption, but I'm not going to grant you that that it's okay. the that it's the general posture of human beings to think other people are selfish. In fact, surveys have been done. My mm-hmm. lab has done. I mean, I could go chapter and verse. For example, we played. Um, my lab does a lot of experiments using economic games. We we have some software that allows us to create temporary artificial societies of real people. Tens of thousands of people have come to this online platform to play these games. And, and, we, and we, they can start out being nice or, or mean to other people. And at least two thirds mm-hmm. of the time, people start by being nice. They don't start, right. start being mean until someone else treats them in a mean way. Mm-hmm. So, or if you look at the level of in our society, we have, I think, the highest level of charitable donations in the world, the American society does. Um, and not just our billionaires, but the you know, average person is giving away a significant fraction of money every year. Even the poor give away money.
2: So so I don't grant that we are I, I think, selfish. Um, I think we have uh, discussed this a bit. I do want to move on to one or two other questions before sure. we move to Q&A. So I'll, I'll kind of leave it to our audience to decide if they want to go into this a bit more. One of the other things uh, we wanted to ask you, Nicholas, so one of your jobs is a director at the Human Nature Lab. Um, you guys are doing some pretty interesting work on things like the genetic basis for human cooperation and uh, how, how that even impacts our social networks. Um, I'd be interested to hear what lessons you've drawn on from that work in writing this book uh, and, and in looking at the COVID response.
1: Well, I mean, the, the, the network science perspective brings a lot to an understanding of um, epidemic disease. Um, let me see if I can give one example, which also touches on the whole issue of super spreaders. This will take three minutes. Let me, sure, it might, might interest people. So there's something about, there's an intrinsic property of a germ that's known as the R naught, the R sub zero, which is uh, attempts to capture how transmissible the germ is intrinsically, how spreadable is it? And, um, and the R naught is defined as the, is, as the basic reproduction number. It's the number of new cases caused by each prior case in a mm-hmm. non-immune, normally interacting host population, so right. it's the ability of the germ to spread. And for co- for COVID nineteen, for SARS CoV two, that is about is between two point five and three point five, probably between two point six and three. Let's say it's three. So for each case, you can get three new cases. If I get sick, on average, I'll infect right. three new people. Well, if you want to, there's this other phenomenon known as herd immunity. And herd immunity is the idea that a population of people can be immune, even if not every individual within them is immune. So for example, if you vaccinate 95% of the people for measles, even if one of the 5% who are not immune get measles, you don't get an epidemic because they can't spread it to anyone. They're not going to bump into another non-immune person. So that 95% level is gives the herd Herd immunity, as if you had vaccinated 100%. You get no outbreaks because you've crossed this threshold. Well, it turns out, as you, you might have the intuition, that the, that threshold should be related to how infectious the pathogen is, what the R naught is. Mm-hmm. And it turns out there's a simple formula for this, which is R naught minus one divided by R naught gives the herd immunity threshold in a population. So, for example, for an R naught of three, Three minus one equals two divided by three equals sixty-seven percent. Right. Would be the number of Americans that would have to get infected with this pathogen in order for us for the epidemic to stop, for us to reach the herd immunity threshold, with no behavior change. Yeah, well, no, the R not is the R not. That is the sixty-seven percent right. is the sixty-seven percent. That is it's just the formula R not minus one divided by R not. So mm-hmm. there, once you know the R not, you know the herd immunity threshold. Um. You, we could bring the RE, the uh, the effective reproduction number down by, for example, if we all became hermits and and permanently stayed as hermits, never again interacted socially, we could stop the epidemic. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the number of us that would have to acquire immunity either naturally or ideally from a vaccine that um, made the epidemic stop. So, so the point is that this is the little calculation, you get 67%. But it turns out that that is an incomplete understanding because that calculation makes an assumption known as the well-mixed assumption, which assumes that every person in the population has an equal probability of interacting with every other person. But this is not true because human beings have friends and they have social networks. Each of us has particular individuals we interact with and the number we have varies. Some of us have many friends, some of us have few friends. So it turns out because of that network structure, If if an epidemic begins at random in a population and is spreading, it's going to reach popular people earlier in the course of the epidemic. So, So very popular people of many connections will be infected earlier in the course of the epidemic, most of the time recover, and therefore be immune. And now all these highly popular people in the middle of the epidemic are immune so they no longer provide avenues for the germ to spread through them. It's like, it's like putting roadblocks on the highway, on the network yes. highway that the germ uses. And therefore an understanding of network structure allows you to, re- to modify the herd immunity threshold. And it turns out that when you do that, the number comes down in this example, right. we're working from 67% to about 45%. So many fewer people need to be infected in order to get herd immunity. And the intuition is just that if you infect all the popular people and you make them immune, then the germ can't spread through them. And similarly, anyone that happens to be a hermit in our population, you're wasting the vaccine on them. There's no reason to give a vaccine to someone that has no social interactions. So that's a network science example. You asked me for an example mm. of how network science is relevant. And there are many other examples, but that super spreading events and so on. But that's one of them.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. So that, would that mean that we might actually uh, naively overestimate the r naught early on in the pandemic because we're actually disproportionately hitting superspreaders?
1: It could be. That's a very subtle and exact question. And so we try not to do that by some various
2: corrections in the ways we go about right. estimating it. Yeah, and I mean, it also seems like in terms of things that got shut down early on, um, I, you know, I, I think of things like uh, religious services. Basically, these these um, points where uh, ordinary people who are very involved in their communities are going to be interacting with a lot of people. You're kind of talking about like the most popular people. I'm assuming you mean people who essentially have like the most points of connection um, with with others in their community. So, oh, you- go ahead.
1: Yeah, I think I think you've mixed two things there. One is We've, we're moving on to
2: a slightly different topic,
1: which is what causes superspreading, and it's not mm-hmm. just not just the germ. And
0: mm-hmm.
1: some germs are more prone to superspreading than other germs. It's not just the people. Some people might be more prone to being superspreaders. For example, let's say you have a bad immune system or an irritable throat, so you cough more. I'm infected and you're infected, but you cough a lot when you're infected, and I don't. You're going to infect more people than i am or something about the environment like being in a church or a choir or a nightclub for instance as you as as you were just highlighting ash so 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 yes the environment can also affect the probability of being uh super
2: spreaders mm-hmm. well I, and that was kind of my question was given what you've just said about how once uh you know these nodes have immunity you kind of have roadblocks um, you know, there, there were people early on in this pandemic, uh, I think of the UK, for example, where they were playing around with this idea of just trying to gun for herd immunity yes. very early on. And so how would you, how would you respond to this uh, kind of very drastic seeming approach? So I was not one of the people
1: who thought it was crazy even to consider that. It's not mm-hmm. a crazy thought to have, okay? It's not. But you have to, first of all, work the numbers and really figure out Like what is going to happen? Because as you saw, they kind of changed course when they said, oh, wait a minute. If we do this, people are going to die in the streets. And that's just, yeah, yeah, that's politically not sustainable. People die in the streets, first point. Second, you have to educate people. You have to say, okay, we're engaging in a strategy like, uh, you know, cannon fodder. You know, we are taking a portion of our populace and we're going to let them die. We're going to take the hit. Yes, we're going to take the hit. And, And I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Here's what's going to happen. In a month, you're going to see this many deaths per day. Some of you are not going to be able to be admitted to the hospital because the hospitals will be inundated. Others of mm. you right now, you think it's not going to affect you, but it could affect you. You know, then you can't it'll be too late to change your mind. I mean, that kind of a public education campaign. And if the public was interested in herd immunity as a deliberate target, you know, it's not crazy. I mean, I wouldn't do it. I don't think it's the right thing to do. Right. But You know, it's not a crazy to consider, especially if especially if you think you're going to wind up willy nilly doing it anyway, let's say through incompetence. In other words, the United States of America might actually yeah. reach herd immunity through incompetence. Yeah.
2: You know, and then head you've head. taken all the the hits of doing the shutdowns without even any of the benefits. The, yes. The and it's yeah. been a
1: completely irrational approach where you haven't attempted to to protect the most vulnerable people. I mean, you've just been Haphazard,
2: you right. know. Right. So, is there? How would you know? Like, given that that early on, it's often difficult to know what exactly the r not is. Like, is there any way you can know when herd immunity is the strategy to use intentionally? I would not advocate for an intentional herd immunity strategy. Uh, so, in, no. In, in any, in any, any pandemic, right? Not just this one. You think it's never the right. Well, I approach suppose to take. Well, I suppose if you had
1: a disease that wasn't fatal at all and it was, you know, you were sure. trying to stop, you know, the disease for no yeah, good the reason. cold or something. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I suppose, you know, there would be no reason to take, you know, just, you know, let people, like like H1N1, you know, we, we scrambled to make a vaccine in 2009, um, you know, uh, but it was, a, as we discussed earlier, a very benign disease, so, you know, the it's the pathogen is circulating, as mm-hmm. you know. We um, um, like, and or seasonal flu, we you know we reach the herd immunity threshold in a very regular basis. Prior to the invention of vaccines, this was the standard denouement of all human epidemics.
2: Yeah, we right? kind of had to power through it. And- yeah, not pow- It's not. I wouldn't. No, just, yeah, just power I, through
1: it. It's not like you're lifting weights. And you're going to get sure, stopped. sure, sure. I, <laughs> I just mean
2: you you couldn't you couldn't use the proxy of a vaccine to try and achieve the same. Uh, no, result. you just yeah. that's just what happens. Yeah. Um, I think uh, we have time for one more question, and then we're going to move to our audience Q&A. So, Nicholas, you have one of the most fascinating discussions uh, I thought you brought forward in the book was this idea of cumulative culture. Um, and so, you know, how people pass lessons onto future generations. So you have a couple of cool examples, like you mentioned, these Aboriginal tribes uh, on some of the Indian Ocean islands, and how they have these oral traditions that instruct them which high ground areas to go to when things like tsunami events happen. And and these tribes actually able were were able to survive. Um, I think it was the two thousand five tsunamis. By following these traditions, you know, you you have stones in places like Japan or in the Elba River um, that that bring forward basically lessons from earlier disasters or warn people how to act in certain situations. So looking at our institutions uh, and assuming that hopefully they've learned at least a few lessons from this. How capable do you see American institutions as being in passing these lessons on, especially more than a generation or two, right? Passing them on for 100 or 200 years? Right. Because we're going to have another thing like this. Right. We'll have another pandemic years, we right. may have. Uh, you know, it could be
1: sooner. There's yeah. nothing prohibiting it from being, right. you know, could be in five or 10 years instead of 100. I mean, it's stochastic. <laughs> I honestly don't know the answer to that, Ash, because like I said, all the knowledge requisite to know what to do was available. We had mm-hmm. experts and we had the world's leading experts on pandemic disease in our country. I mean, we right. Tony it Fauci used. Yeah, yeah, Tony Fauci. Aren't
2: just information basically.
1: Yeah, Tony Fauci was publishing papers about this when I was in college. You guys mm-hmm. weren't even born yet. I mean, it's ridiculous. We had, you know, one of the world's authorities on pandemic disease, who's been heading the National Institute for Infectious Disease, you know, for decades now. Um, You know, we we've had other hard lessons like the HIV pandemic, for example, you know, which our country went through. And we actually there, too, there was a lot of denial initially. Right. President Reagan didn't even talk about it for like six years. He was halfway through his second term before he made the first remarks about HIV Um, and also stigmatizing of minority groups. So, you know, gay people were blamed and Haitians were blamed and IV drug users were blamed and always this temptation to blame others in the case of pandemic disease then too so we we had the national experience with this we had the expertise we had the experts and still we fumbled so i can't answer your question in other words mm. the stones were built but people like the tsunami stones that you alluded to were built but people didn't heed it the right. thing that the thing that worked in the andaman islands so they had an oral tradition for events that happen in deep time in time that surpasses human memory and the tradition was if you see the sea suddenly recede as if it were a tide but much faster and much deeper and you've never seen anything like that before go to this temple made of stone on this hill and pray Mm -hmm. this was the tradition and this was taught generation after generation after generation then the day came when all of a sudden this thing in the story happened and people like oh my god that thing in the story is happening. We better go to this temple and pray. And the water washed inland over the island and stopped short of the stone temple up on the hill. And they all mm-hmm. survived. Right.
2: They all survived. culture that values the info. Yes. Essentially.
1: Yes, exactly. Meanwhile, you know, all over the coast of India with modern buoys and satellites and everything else, thousands of people die. Right. Mm. So it's about, It's not just about having the information, it's about transmitting it, it's about respecting it, and so on.
0: Yeah, it's about acting on the information. Yeah, so that wraps up the first half of the salon for this week. Uh, Next, we'll be taking questions from a live and select audience of Palladium members. This half of the discussion is available to the subscribers and Palladium members only. To become a member and get invited to upcoming salons, please visit us at palladiumeg.com slash subscribe. So thanks for joining us for part one of the discussion with Dr. Nicholas Christakis. His new book is Apollo's Arrow, the profound and enduring impact of coronavirus on the way we live.